0: Alright, this morning we're uh, beginning Hebrews chapter 2. I've entitled this Reimagining the World. The idea, I think, in Hebrews is that uh, it's written to Jews who are having to uh, reimagine or rethink, uh, change up their minds completely in regard to their understanding of things that they're very familiar with. And, of course, that's true of all of us as we enter into Hebrews and enter into the New Testament, that part of the thing that is happening is that our uh, imagination, our understanding, our uh, picture of whether the world is a place of enchantment or disenchantment is going to be changed up. Let me read verse 1 to 4 of chapter 2. For this reason we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders, and by various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. Hebrews is simultaneously calling us to enlarge our imagination, to see beyond a mundane, ordinary reality, and it is also giving us strong warning of judgment if we don't do that. Salvation and all that it entails is open to us, Hebrews says, do not neglect it, pay close attention, do not fall away, do not fail to enter that rest. It's a warning that we are not dealing with a secondary order of things, but reality itself. This is not a, the writer says, a mere mountain of smoke and fire. This is the divine presence that we've come to. This is not a mere earthly city. This is the heavenly Jerusalem. This is not a continually repeated sacrifice. This is the real sacrifice. This is not a temple constructed with human hands, but it's one that's built by God. The veil has been pulled back. The shadow has been replaced by the thing which it foreshadows. So listen up. Pay attention. Take care, brethren. He says in 3.12, that there not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. 4.1-2 talks about entering into the promised rest today. Today, if you hear his voice, do not fail to enter in. Therefore, let us fear if while a promise remains of entering in, that any be seen short of falling, you know, falling short of it. Uh, Let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall. And he's talking about the Exodus generation that failed to enter into the promised rest of the promised land. But of course, the rest that we have in Christ is not this shadow rest, that this is the real thing, that we really have a Sabbath from God in which we are freed from the reality of slavery, uh, freed from the unrest, the agonistic struggle uh, with which the law and which sin presents us. We have a great high priest, the writer says, who has passed through the heavens. The image is not just that, you know, Jesus is in the heavens, but that he's representing us, that the Holy of Holies is now available to us. He says in chapter 10, Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. So, when in, what in Judaism had been saw, symbolic, only pertaining to Israel, is now a reality concerned with the whole world. The temple, as the place in which God dwells, is now transformed into a presence that is both real and accessible through the community of the church, through the community of the faithful. The glory of God is not simply to be found in those Old Testament appearances, those theophanies, but God's presence is really with us in Christ. This is the promise in the communion, that where we two or three are gathered together, that his presence is there with us. Most uniquely in the book of Hebrews, in in addition to the cosmos itself, that is the world of space Uh, is changed up, they're all summed up, but time itself is changed up in Christ. Heaven and earth are being brought together, and this has resulted in the sort of urgency echoed in Hebrews, that is in terms of today. In these last days, God has spoken to us in his Son, Today I have begotten you. So with each warning, there is this urgency of a different sort of time factor. We've entered into what we might call messianic time, the present moment, today, the Sabbath rest. And it means that it is no longer ordinary chronos, no longer ordinary time, but it's kairos. God's plan for redemption is being worked out in the redemptive time that is commenced in the Sabbath rest that is made available to us in Christ. So God's plan for space was to unite heaven and earth in the Messiah, and God's plan for time was to bring everything to a head in the Messiah. Uh, with a view to, you know, this is Ephesians 1.10, gets at this. With a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ. Things in the heavens and things on the earth. So the great now of the gospel is the fresh reality that previously was only marked with a signpost. The Sabbath, you know, that the Jews kept was symbolic of the Sabbath rest that we've actually entered into. We've entered into this now time. In Hebrews 1, 1 to 2, this is the way the writer, you know, begins the book. After he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions, in many ways, in these last days, He's spoken to us in His Son. He's spoken Himself. So just as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. So we the, the picture here is that we've passed from, uh, there's kind of two times we might think of it in terms of uh, our ordinary time that we live, and then there is this special redemptive time, and the writer is telling us to not only see a different reality in regards to the cosmos, but in terms of the kairos. Two times enter into what the apostle calls the present time. Messianic time is a summary recapitulation of the past. This recapitulation of the past produces a fullness, a pleroma, a messianic kairoi. And it's literally... Uh, full of Chronos, but it's an abbreviated summary of Chronos. It anticipates eschatological fullness when God will be all in all. So this messianic fullness uh, is a kind of we're beginning to already experience the eschatological fulfillment today. If you hear His voice, it, you know back even in Genesis in two two when it talks about. God created the, the world, and then on the seventh day he rested. Uh, the Sabbath was really, you know, we often think of that as a kind of secondary aspect to creation, but actually the whole point of creation is to be found in the Sabbath rest of God. It constituted then the period in which God would cease one activity and begin another activity. That activity of his, history, that is the redemptive activity of God, that redemptive activity of God has come to its fullness in Christ. And so we've entered into this messianic time. It's not just another day, not just homogenous with other periods of time, but rather we've come to the innermost meaning of time, through which one can grasp time. You know, this was the Greek picture of Kronos, that he was pictured as a young man running past and he had a ponytail. And of course, you could never get a handle on time. You could never grab him. You could never capture him. The idea is that now we can get a handle on time. We can enter into the meaning of time. The writer says in 3.13, encourage one another day after day as long as it is called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. He says somewhere Concerning the seventh day, God rested. That is, the writer of Hebrews is appealing. He's saying, the purpose of the cosmos is to be found in this today, this messianic time. You know, they shall not enter my rest was what was pronounced on the generation of of, of Moses. Uh, You know, we read today the generation of Noah. That previous generations, in fact, fell short of realizing the fullness of God. But we are now able to enter and we are able to, to take hold of the promises that was just a shadow. Today, saying through David after so long a time, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Let us draw near with confidence, he says, in time of need. So don't let yourselves, Paul says, something very similar in Romans 12 too, not to be sque- squeezed or shaped or dictated to by the present age. Be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you can work out what God's will is, His good, acceptable, and complete will. So the command only makes sense if the age to come is already powerfully present if the but now of the gospel is, means what it says, it is this new time has dawned upon us. But now in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 2.13, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Ephesians 3.10, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. In Isaiah, it says, In a favorable time I have answered you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you, and I will keep you and give you uh, for a covenant of the people to restore the land, to make them inherit the desolate heritages. We are the ones then who can say... You know, He says, go forth to those who are in the darkness. Show yourselves. Along the roads they will feed and their pasture will be on all bare heights. That we've entered into this picture in, that, uh, in Isaiah of this future favorable time. Sing to the Lord, the psalm says, a new song. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless His name. Proclaim good tidings. Of his salvation from day to day. The writer of Hebrews references. How will we escape. If we neglect so great a salvation. So he pictures the signs and wonders of the period of exodus. As being a mere shadow of the reality of God with us. Um, We have tasted the good word of God in 6.5. And the powers of the age to come. The age to come is now. And so Hebrews assumes that material reality, this world can participate. We can participate in something more. We can participate in eternity itself. Jesus Jesus enters on our behalf into the Holy of Holies. He offers his own materiality, his own blood, as a full and sufficient sacrifice heaven and earth intersect in a sacred time that we then have the opportunity today that it's made available continually in the body of Christ. Um, In uh, Deuteronomy 4, it says, "...has a God tried to go to take for himself a nation from within another nation by trials, signs, and wonders, and by war?" And by a mighty hand, by an outstretched arm, to you it was shown that you might know that the Lord, he is God. There is no other besides him. Um, He uh, he let you see his great fire and you heard his words. The writer is taking these theophanies of the Old Testament and he's saying, yeah, but as great as these were, what you have in Christ should make you tremble even more. It's, it's fearful, and it's wonderful. Uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, talking about the miracles that have been performed, The sign, he says, I perform the signs of a true apostle the, among you with all perseverance. In Romans 15, "...in the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and round about us I have fully preached the gospel." That is, the signs that have come with the gospel have far outweighed the glory of the signs connected to the appearing of God in the Old Testament. So, Hebrews is calling us to be see beyond the kind of flat reality. You know, we were talking about this this morning in the generation of Noah, uh, in a kind of world in which we've been nurtured, we, we tend to have a kind of flat understanding of reality. We have a kind of modern understanding that everything is uh, contextualized. You know, this is on a computer screen. You can literally break all of reality down to ones and zeros, and it can be plotted in this binary code And unfortunately, in a secular age, we have this kind of disenchanted mathematical understanding in which uh, it seems that everything can be given a kind of commodity, value, and exchanged. We live in a disenchanted world. We live in a world where belief in God, even for many, is no longer a live possibility. I think that's what it means to be secular. Uh, the mystery of the universe is in some way closed. Our eyes are blinded. Rudolf Boltzmann, who certainly accepted the flat metaphysics of the modern era, says, He says, we cannot use electric lights and radios and in the event of illness avail ourselves of modern medical and clinical means and at the same time believe in the spirit and wonder world of the New Testament. He says, I'm a modern man. I believe in science. I can't believe in this spiritual reality of the New Testament. This is a mythical reality. And he sets out to demythologize the New Testament. If you go and study the New Testament in the north, in the south in the great universities of the land, you're still reading this kind of classic liberalism of Rudolf Boltman, in which the New Testament is demythologized. The world is a disenchanted place and reality is a flat numerical system in which the imagination is closed and the eyes are blind. Boltman intended his statement to show the need to demythologize, to get rid of... The, the Bible's enchantments and make it palpable, palatable, you know, on our kind of flat grid. What I would say is Hebrews challenges this intent by saying, you know what, the real world is not this flat metaphysical grid, but it's this deep reality in which God himself is at work in the cosmos. Um, I don't usually use movie uh, illustrations, but this th- this is such a good movie, and some of you've seen it. Uh, the The Matrix, you know, is the story of uh, that you. It's just an ordinary wor- world reality, and you. But what you realize is that it's all actually a computer program, and that everybody's in these little vats, and that the whole thing is just played into their imagination. Uh, and then one guy gets unplugged from the matrix. In a sense, that's, you know, thinking of the generation of Noah or thinking of each generation. We're all plugged into a kind of matrix. It's the nurture that's given to us, and we're fed an understanding of reality that in some way the tubes have to be cut. In The, in the Matrix, the one of the key characters Uh, he says that the world uh, pulled over your eyes is to blind you to the truth. The main character says, what truth? And Morpheus, this character getting him out of this matrix, says, you are a slave born into a prison for your mind. And then Morpheus' statement to Neo is that this matrix is all around us, even now in this very room. You can see it when you look out your window or when you turn on your television. You can feel it when you go to work, when you go to church, when you pay your taxes. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you to the truth. I think that we all live in a kind of matrix that we've been nurtured into and what we need to happen is to enter into the enchanted world that is being opened up to us in the New Testament in a book like the book of Hebrews. In the movie The Matrix, you know, Morpheus holds out, he says, now here's the blue pill and if you take the blue pill, you can go back and live in the Matrix. You can just live your life out You know, uh, just have the computer program play its uh, binary code out in your head. Now here's the red pill, and if you take the red pill, we're going to pull you out of this matrix, and we're going to introduce you to the real. I think Hebrews is the red pill. Here is the enchanted world. Here is a different understanding of reality. He's showing them, he's saying, well, here's the temple and here is the law and here is the things that have been presented to us in the Old Testament. But actually, these then are a mere foreshadowing. There is a depth of reality that if you will open yourselves to it, if you will open your eyes, if you will take the red pill, if you will enter in today, this enchanted world will be open to you. We will need to relinquish, though, in the process, the world that we've created for ourselves, the world that we comfortably live in. And so the first step in reading Hebrews requires that we begin to see reality beyond the flat grid uh, that is pushed upon us. One of the church fathers, Athanasius, describes maybe how we might go about this. But for the searching and right understanding of the scriptures, there is need of a good life and a pure soul. And for Christian virtue to guide the mind, to grasp, so far as human nature can, the truth concerning God, the word. One cannot possibly understand the teaching of the saints unless one has a pure mind and is trying to imitate their life. Similarly, anyone who wishes to understand the mind of the sacred writers must first cleanse his own life and approach the saints by copying their deeds. That is, that it's a discipline to enter into this understanding. Reading scripture well is less a matter of finding the proper method, you know, a historical critical method, a higher critical method, a method of demythologizing, but it's more the idea of entering into the strange new world of the Bible, the embodiment of a different way of living, of a different philosophical understanding in the ancient sense, in that we will allow the world to be seen more closely. Perhaps we need a reworking of our imagination. And I think the book of Hebrews is the place that we could begin. Let's sing our hymn of imitation.